just started dabbling a little bit in whiskey in the later years of college. And I remember being home for winter break and I'm driving with my dad. We're in, we're in the suburban. He's driving. And I just look over and say, dad, why don't we make whiskey? And he didn't even look over at me. He's got his hands on the steering wheel. He just says, we're good at one thing and that's beer. When you think of Coors, you're probably like me, and you get the image of the silver bullet and those cold blue mountains on the side of the can. Or perhaps you know Molson Coors as one of the top beverage brands in the world. But you most certainly didn't think of Coors as a whiskey company until now. David Coors joins the show to talk about the family business and going from just a beer company into a full-blown beverage enterprise. David has a deep connection with whiskey, and that spans all the way back to his childhood and he is now spearheading the next phase of company expansion by releasing their first ever collaboration whiskey along with Bardstown Bourbon Company called Five Trail. Listen to David's story on how Coors is learning what it's like to get into the whiskey business. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from longtime listener and frequent commenter on the show, Don Knott. Don writes, when you first thought up of the idea of Above the Char on Bourbon Pursuit, I thought it was going to be a place where you would give your opinion on issues facing the industry. When did you decide to change that perspective and answer fans' questions about bourbon itself? Well, Don, that's a great question. There's a few things at play here that need to be discussed. One is... These shows are recorded weeks, sometimes months in advance. And in order to be on time with the editor's schedule, I actually have to record in bulk to get the above the chars. So it's in the editing schedule. So when you hear an interview here on the show, it didn't take place last week. It often took place six weeks ago to like three months. So that's one thing. Part of it is is scheduling. The other part is when when I first started this. I was like getting all of these emails of people wanting to know my thoughts on a particular issue. And they were very rarely an issue that was timely. You know, they just wanted to know how a bottle should be stored or about barrel finishes or or why somebody's not going into a 375 for their limited edition products. So, you know, so they were issues that were quite a bit deeper than just like a timely issue. And and it really dawned on me. It dawned on me that above the char is is really a is an opportunity for me to just kind of rapid fire questions. And and I love that. And you have to understand I've been doing this for two decades and I have a I've written seven books and four of which are in the in the booze business. I sometimes don't always know what people want to hear. And so I will just kind of go from what I'm thinking and completely miss out on what, you know, the public wants. So this is the best way for me to engage with the public and deliver exactly what people want to, you know, hear my opinion on. And also it saves me from having to uh, possibly repeat something. One of the things about writing about whiskey is you eventually write the same thing three times over. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've written about barrel proof, weed of bourbon, special barrel finishes. That's why these formats are very exciting for me, is because it gives me 
a new way to approach a lot of the stuff I've written about for 16 years. So, but Don, I appreciate that question. I, I hope you like the format. If you don't like the format, let us know what I can do to improve it. But uh, that's going to do it for this week's uh, Above the Char. If you would like to be like Don, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button. Let me know your, your, your idea. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today talking to somebody we, I didn't know we were actually going to have somebody like this on the show at any point in our career of ever doing this, but we get to have a, a fun conversation because it's one of the largest beverage companies that are out there in the world and they're venturing to the whiskey space, but I think it's going to be really interesting to kind of know more about our guests in his past and kind of how he got to this point too. Yeah. Our buddy from Bardstown Bourbon Company, Dan, just keeps sending us like epic <laughs> guests. It's like, do you want to have Brad Paisley on? Sure. Do you want David Coors on? Sure. It's <laughs> like, uh, heck yeah. I'm ex like super excited about today. So no, it's, yeah, to be able to sit down with one of the iconic brands, you know, of the, you know, American spirits, beer and whatnot. I'm super excited about today. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So, uh, yeah, let's dive into it a little dive bit. Into it. Yeah. I mean, I, just to kind of dovetail on what you said, I really do think it is exciting just because 
we get to expose people to another side of, of a business that they might not know about. I mean, we know that beer is big, but I don't think anybody really knows how big this can really be. And it's a, I think just from a, a business aspect, I think it'll be interesting to kind of talk about this and, and really where it leads into figuring out how do we figure out what's, what's the next innovation? What are the next things that people are looking at? And, and where do they see their portfolio going? Because if you're, if you're sitting stale, you're not growing. And so you've got to try to figure out how do you find these new avenues and these things that people are interested in. So that's what I'm interested in. So we'll dive Yeah, in. I'm, I'm here to take notes because <laughs> I want to learn how you come like the second or third biggest <laughs> brewery in the nation. Yeah, I know. It'd be good. So today on the show, we have David Coors. David is the vice president of Next Generation Beverages at Molson Coors. So David, welcome to the show. Thank you guys very much for having me. It's awesome to be here. Well, good. So before we dive into that, let's Let's go way, way back in the time capsule here. So kind of guide us through sort of your involvement with, you know, the family and the business and everything like that to getting into just the beverage alcohol industry. Yeah. So I, I guess it all started way back in 1873 when, uh, <laughs> when my great, great grandfather, Adolf Coors, uh, immigrated from Germany and, and ended up in Golden, Colorado to start a brewery. And back then it was just a bunch of thirsty miners that he was satisfying with his cold beers at the end of a week. And I'm just fortunate to be part of that story of, of five generations in the beverage industry. And uh, here we are today now talking about whiskey, which is pretty wild. Yeah. So was he going to mine gold or what, what led him to Colorado? Or is it the one of the, where they always say you want to be the one that sells the shovels? Right. Like but Le- not actually like yeah. Levi Strauss yeah, sells yeah. the jeans and the lunch boxes to the, to the <laughs> exactly. miners. Yeah. I mean, probably something like that, but uh, he was actually a brewing apprentice over in Germany and then immigrated over to America and landed in Baltimore and then worked his way across the country. Uh, worked in a brewery in Illinois, Stanger Brewery had this passion for beer from his apprenticeship days and landed in Golden and he found uh, the spring water in Golden and said, well, the the key ingredient to making a good beer at that time was good water because they didn't have filtration techniques and and everything that we have today. So uh, he got into the beer business with a friend and next thing you know, it just continued to be a small little local brewery in Golden. And no, he was not mining. He was he was giving those thirsty miners uh, their their grog at the end of the week, and um, it slowly evolved from there. Colorado water sounds better than Baltimore water. <laughs> no offense to our Baltimore people out there. <laughs> sounds fresher. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go through a, a huge in-depth history of, of cores or anything like that, because I'm sure it just spans a centennial almost. Like, it's just a long, long time. Kind of talk about where the brand is at this point in regards of, you know, just Molson Coors and like how it's grown. Yeah. So we're one of the the globe's uh, leading brewers and just crazy to even say that, but but where we are today and, and it was two years ago that we made a, a kind of a statement to the market saying we're going to shift into a beverage company. We've, we've been known for beer over the years and as we see consumer habits evolving and changing, it was, okay, where, where do we want to evolve as a company and, and getting into other beverages was one of the stance that we took. And uh, that's when I got the wonderful opportunity to run the categories that I get to run. And one of those being spirits and our venture into, into whiskey was one of my passion points. And we can get into that fun story because that one goes back actually about 20 years. All right. Well, <laughs> well, it's before we get into there, I, yeah. I, I think the whiskey, we can, we can go on to that. I, I kind of want to focus a little bit more on, on you. So how old were you when you kind of started, at what point did you realize like your name carries weight and value? Like when you're in high school or middle school or anything like that, be like, Hey, my, that's my name on a can of beer over there. Like how, when did that ever register for you? Yeah. It, it's funny because I've always 
I, I guess even when I was younger, looked at the the name as a brand more so than my last name and, and separating them from the family versus the brand. Uh, but my, I mean, when I was growing up, I was, I'm the youngest of six, uh, four girls and two boys. My dad was running the brewery and it was going through this rapid expansion. I mean, when he started, it was in, uh, I think he said he was in 13 states and only had eight SKUs at the time. And this is in the seventies, right? And, and people think of Coors being this global brand, but we really were a regional brewer you know, 30 years ago. And uh, he took it through the massive expansion over the years. And so he was traveling on the weekends all the time and he would bring us along to events, whether that was rodeos back in the day or whatnot. And and he'd just tag us along so he could have time with us and also do his job at the same time. So we grew up around our distributors, our sales organization. I mean, we do things at the brewery. They do, uh, you know, 5K runs through the brewery property and all that kind of stuff. We do those as kids. And it was just kind of part of the family. It was a small relatively small business at that time. Did all your friends in high school, middle school be like, come on, buddy, get some, <laughs> yeah, get some, you, you gotta get, be our contact We're throwing, a, we're throwing yeah. a rager this weekend, <laughs> come on, hook us up. Well, I mean, when I was in high school, it was actually when my dad was doing uh, the TV commercials. And I remember, you know, being in high school with, with hanging out with friends and he'd come on the TV and say a top of, of conversation around our family has been underage drinking for a long time and, and had his responsible drinking message uh, on the TV. And it was always, one of those that'd be weird. You'd be hanging with friends and you see your dad on the TV and it just, uh, but again, it was, it's all I knew at the time. Yeah. I mean, obviously when you get a family business, you know, you can probably always have that path, but some people choose it. Some people don't. When did you decide, like, I do want to be a part of this and continue this on? I, I always kind of, uh, aspired to be in the business just because I had so much fun growing up as a kid, going to the, the events and everything. But my dad was very much not, someone who forced our hand at it. It was, you You do what you want to do. And we we have a family rule. We have to work outside the business for at least two years before inside the business. So I worked in oil and gas actually in West Virginia for four years. And it's just one of those where I, I think sometimes- <laughs> like, I got to get to beer. <laughs> Back to beer. Uh, I, I had fun playing in the dirt, but I was uh, a lot more fun on the beer side of things. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Are your, are your brothers and sisters, if you're the youngest, are they still involved in family business or how, like in what aspects? And is there a lot of that that internal sibling rivalry that happens too? Yeah, we have a, the, the family on the private side has a collection of businesses. And so I have different family members and cousins running or working at different family businesses. But on the beer side right now, it's just my brother and myself. And my brother's on the operations side. He's the brewer of the family and overseeing a big renovation project for the Golden Brewery. So if, whenever I need technical advice or support, I go to him because he's he's the one for that. So he went to brewing school-ish. Did, did you do the same thing? Uh, I did not. I, I did my MBA and he did his master's of brewing. So we got, <laughs> we got the basis covered. <laughs> so what, yeah, what, uh, you know, with family businesses, it's hard to like, you know, to, to for have a generational, you know, lineage like that. How, what's been, why has it been so successful for the Coors family to still be a part of that? Like there has to be some kind of like ethos or, you know, something within the family you know, to keep that, uh, you know, name alive and well in the, the business. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as as everyone probably knows, you need a little bit of luck in business. Um, and that certainly helps. And, and so we've had a lot of uh, good luck, a lot of great people that have worked for the company, made some great decisions and probably some that the family would regret over the years. But 
you know, we're part of what I like to say, a collection of family brewers. We have, we're in partnership with the Molson family um, and the ownership structure. It's a publicly traded company. We also have the Line and Kugel family as part of our portfolio. And then, and then a collection of craft breweries as well that we brought under the fold. So I think with family businesses, it's, it's, you think in generations, not in quarters. And we have that fine balance, right, of uh, appealing the public shareholders and managing to, from a quarter to quarter perspective, but also, you know, the families want to be around and, and we want to preserve it for our children and their grandchildren. When did Coors start to pivot away from just the Coors line and start to like, you know, I guess becoming, you know, diversified in these other breweries and whatnot? That's funny. I mean, even Coors Light was a big debate amongst the family. Um, really? Yes. I want to know more about that. <laughs> uh, was, was it just Banquet? <laughs> it was just Banquet at the time. I love Banquet. Yeah. And the the sales executives were saying, we need a, we need a light beer to compete with uh, Miller Light and Bud Light. And, you know, my great uncle Bill said, well, we, we are America's fine light lager. That was our tagline at the time. And it was, we don't need... We don't need a light beer. We have a light beer. We just and, don't, it just doesn't say it on the label. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And exactly. So it was one of those where we're slowly, um, the, the executive team um, convinced them that we need a light beer. And we launched that in 78, which was, I think, about six years after Miller Lite was the first light beer that launched. And, and so that was the first foray beyond Banquet. And then beyond that, I mean, even you look at our, I think Killian's Irish Red, if you remember that beer. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... My dad used to drink a lot of Killian's, now that, that you say yeah, that. Yeah, that was in the 80s, right? And that was before kind of the craft beer boom and had a, a collection of brands, both below premium to above premium. And Blue Moon's a, a brand that we built in-house at the the Coorsfield Brewery, uh, the Sandlot Brewery at Coorsfield. So it's it's one of those where you do have to, as you mentioned, you've got to innovate. Um, I think I've read behind. a story about Blue Moon where your dad said it would never, like, amount to anything or something yep. <laughs> yeah. obviously is wrong he tried to kill it three times but uh, <laughs> why was that what oh because he i mean he's a he's a lager drinker he loves banquet and he said who's gonna drink this wheat beer you with fruit in it orange in it <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell exactly but uh fortunately other people in the company kept it alive and and uh, it became a great success so so you go get your mba and you go and you go oil and gas for two years and so what point do you enter the company yeah, so oil and gas for four years actually. Four then, years because uh, you had it was a two year minimum, but two -year you said minimum. I'm going to go overachiever there. Yeah. I was I was uh, making. He's on the Van Wilder plan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean I was having fun. I was sleeping out of my truck uh, more times than sleeping in my bed, and and working with great you know rig crews down in the hills of West Virginia and in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and just had a I was having fun, a little bit ignorant at the time, and then um, went and got my MBA at Northwestern for two years, and then. Um, and then I started actually at one of our distributorships in Indianapolis called Monarch Beverage. And that was my first kind of official foray into, I did a couple internships throughout high school and college at the brewery, but my first paying job was, uh, was in Indianapolis. So you got to see the, the other side of the distribution kind You're of like, game. Why are we giving them 25% of this? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah. It was, I mean, it went through their management training program and they had a wine side as well. So I was dusting bottles of wine or I was on a keg delivery truck throwing 120. One of these guys that worked on this truck, Greg, I think was his name, would throw 120 kegs a day. Oh, and he was he was in his 50s and still doing it like it was nothing. And here I am, a skinny, scrawny little, you know, 28-year-old or whatever, and wheeling kegs down 10 flight of, uh, for a flight of stairs. And, and it's just, you appreciate to go, especially when you have a beer or whiskey or something at a retail account, it's probably touched 20 hands over the sure. you know, life of that product and you appreciate it more. Yeah, a similar story. What changed like 
whiskey for me was seeing like a Cooper making the barrel, like sweating and, you know, just the heat and fire and everything. And you see like, and you're like, I'm never going to talk bad about a whiskey again. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like <laughs> this poor guy sweat his ass off so I can enjoy, you know, some whiskey. Just for but, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess, uh, so now you, well, actually, let's roll back. So you did a few interns at the distillery. Was it on the production side? Were you back office? Like what What really was your sort of like vision or wanting to do there? Yeah, one of my internships was at the Golden Brewery and got to rotate through a few different divisions. But we have one of the country's largest barley breeding program, organized barley breeding program. And uh, so I got to spend two weeks with our barley growers and our grain elevators receiving barley and doing quality control on that barley and working at our Marlton house in, in the Golden Brewery um, and got to work at the Sandlot Brewery for two weeks with those guys. And they taught me about making beer. And so it was great rotational program also to see the different facets of what goes into, you know, making that, uh, that bottle or can of beer. Yeah. Cause Colorado is like a Fantastic climate for barley. Why is barley so good from, you know, that region? Yeah. So, well, for the region, it's climate. So you want, uh, you want an arid temperature. You don't, hail is a huge damaging factor that can ruin a crop. You don't want flooding because then you can get molding. So you want it arid, but you want it irrigated to a certain extent so that it can, you can grow the barley. And, and then it's a small window to harvest it uh, before it either goes bad or before you could have hail crop damage. So, it is just one of those climates, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, great climates for barley growing. And actually there was a, the, the reason that Coors got into the barley business was because my great uncle Bill said that uh, barley is to beer as grapes are to wine. Now this is back in the day before IPAs and everyone was a hophead, <laughs> right. you know, and it was about real clean, crisp lagers and you need great barley to make great beer. And uh, so he had a sample sent to him from from Germany. And, uh, he started, he said, oh, I'll go throw this in the, and the company had a little, uh, greenhouse there. So they started breeding their own barley from, you know, a couple heads of barley every year. You know, they I think it's 16 fold every, every kernel produces 16 heads. And so over time we're able to, to start testing these crops. And that was 60 years ago that we've been breeding barley and helping our growers use less water, get higher yields, higher quality barley. That's more weather resistant. And that's what I think one makes good beer. And that's what uh, kind of got me excited about using that as an ingredient in our whiskey. I was about to say, I was more barley than I was expecting to hear right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always heard that a lot of barley was grown in Colorado and not assumed. So I was just asking why. That makes like, sense. Now, because yeah. now it's it's getting to the point where you where you get that large, you can't really just source all the barley. Like you got to own the farm too. You got to own everything from the, right. down it's to like the soil. The McDonald's, you know, the potato farmers, they buy, you know, all the potato farms in Idaho, you know? Yep. Supply you don't want to lay on, you don't want another bottleneck in the supply chain issue. So you take control of the grain too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, think of the pandemic and all the challenges it had on the supply chain side. I mean, the family back in the day was very worried about that. Everything from we own our own locomotives, um, had our, uh, our own bottling plant, can plant, and it was packaging facilities. So we, we were very vertically integrated for a period of time. And, and it was because going through some rough patches and now we all go through, you know, the wonderful COVID environment the past couple of years and the supply chain issues. And you can understand why businesses do that. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. We're learning ourselves <laughs> yeah. now. Glass and all this yeah. shenanigans and it hurts. It hurts it's... to think about it. <laughs> I know. We feel the pain. Yeah. So you did a few different internships and then do your thing in the oil thing, go get your MBA. So then when you come to the company and what's kind of your, your entry point into this? 
after working at the distributorship was uh, went into brand marketing. So okay. I worked on the Coors Banquet brand in our Chicago office and just a brand near and dear to our hearts, obviously, is um, with the family and and had a blast on that brand. Uh, was part of the team that launched the Stubby Bottle. You know, it used to be in Long Necks oh, yeah. and then we launched the old Stubby Bottle. Is that to like capture on some sort of like vintage vibe? Like what was the nostalgic the yeah. thing? Yeah, it was, we were flipping through an old brochure that we found in the company archives and we saw this image of the Stubby Bottle and there's actually, you know, gosh, we've probably been through a couple dozen different bottle types over the generations. We thought, wow, that would be really cool. Let's, let's, we could do maybe just a limited test and see how this goes. And then everyone kind of got more excited about it. And we said, okay, no, we'll make it sustaining. But we left some other long neck bottle packages in the marketplace. And then it slowly just took over as, as the iconic skew for that brand. And it's, it is, it's one of those, it's classic, iconic, but it's still relevant today. I can tell you it worked on me because I, <laughs> I, I want to say I saw it on like Madman or Don Draper was drinking it in an episode or something. And then I saw it you know, in the liquor, and I was like, that is a, that looks like what Don Draper drank, you know? <laughs> and then I started drinking it and I was like, why haven't I had a banquet beer? I've never had, I never heard a banquet. I always heard of Coors Light. And then yeah. it started becoming everything I, that I would drink. Cause it was like, Coors Light was light, but this was like more full body, more robust and stuff. So yeah, it worked. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. Or Yellowstone. That was the first feather, feather. <laughs> Maybe that's cap. what it was. Maybe Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the other thing is that now you're bringing these up. I've got to ask. I'm a huge fan of Cobra Kai. Yeah. Was was that product placement or was that just like luck of everything? Like how'd that all work out? Yeah, that was organic where the producer really wanted an authentic beer in that era and that time. And um, Coors Banquet was a, a big brand in California back at that point in time. And so it was it was just a good fit for the character and 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 the brand, but great show. I agree. It's uh cracks me up. Uh, yeah. Nerds out. I know. <laughs> I'm like, enough with the Cobra Kai. Child of the eighties. <laughs> and like, I grew up just, you know, that was one of those things. It's like, if it's on USA network, I'm watching it. you know, it's like, it's, or TBS, whatever it is. I'm always watching that. Yeah. But there's, there's younger kids that started watching that episode and, and they're in, and then they go back and they watch the, uh, the original version. And it's, it's, a, it's a riot to see it span generation. It's a little grainy. You know, a, the picture's a little grainy, but yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, I saw that and I was like, man, that's like awesome because you don't see a whole lot of like the, the, the course banquet, like promotional advertising or anything like that. But it was such a, an important, at least for me, I look at it as like a huge important part of, uh, my culture and, and a lot of people that really were invested into those types of 80s movies and kind of see it like have this resurgence is really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's fun when that all comes together with the fit. Same with Yellowstone, right? It just fits that show and that era and, and the cowboy lifestyle. And yeah, are you friends with Rip? I, I, I'm working on it. <laughs> I know. Rip's I my favorite character. I'd He's love awesome. to hang out with him today. Maybe just his character, but yeah, maybe <laughs> leave Beth out of it though. He might kill me. <laughs> so you were doing the brand marketing side for, for Coors Banquet. Then what was the next stage for you there? Yeah. Then I got into our innovation team and started working on uh, some of our new innovations from a company's standpoint. And I don't know if you remember a brand, but it's it's one of my learnings in life was a, a failure, which usually failures are a good learning opportunity. Oh, yeah. We're big fans of failing forward. So <laughs> there you go. We do it every day. Yep. Uh, but I don't know if you remember a brand called Third Shift. Um, Third Shift? I don't think I know that one. It was an award. It's, probably, it's probably better we don't you're, know. You're not failures in our eyes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> if we never heard about it, then you're fine. It was an amber uh, amber lager that was delicious, uh, won some awards, and, and and I think that this is where, you know, as, as a big business and we were trying to, craft was just coming on and we were trying to diversify beyond just Blue Moon and Line and Cools and craft space. And I think we got a little, we, well, I know we got a little too cute with the marketing side of things and we had a great beer. I mean, everyone just loved the product, but 
Uh, we didn't market it well, and I was responsible for that. So that's why I chalk it up as one of those uh, learnings in, in my storied marketing history, I guess. Or, but yeah, it was it was it bringing a new product to life. And as you guys know, it's it is hard. You get emotionally invested in it. You think you've created the best thing. It's like your your firstborn child, right? And right. And uh, there's no imperfections at all. And and but turns out that there are. Then the market says otherwise. <laughs> yeah, you're like shit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what what year is this, by the way? So so we can set the the time table. Yeah, that was um, that was probably 2012. Okay, so yeah. you so you said that you didn't market it very well. What lessons did you learn about marketing and that you could capture from that failure to like to apply to you know brands you work with today? Yeah, I, I think consumers are amazingly informed these days, and they they love to smell. They love to sniff out BS. And not that there was BS, but I think when you over, if, if a story is too intricate and too complex, you lose them, right? And and they either get distracted or they do more digging and they find out, well, there's there's other stuff behind the story that they don't completely align with. So it's one of those where it's tried and true across everything and and some somehow we keep making the same mistakes. Keep it but simple, yeah, let's <laughs> keep it simple, authenticity, and have a have have a good clean story. It's like telling a lie. If you're too detailed, it's like people are going <laughs> right. to step it out. Like, I, I gonna... believed you at first, but now you keep going. So. <laughs> that's a great analogy. <laughs> you didn't need to tell me the timestamp. I know it now. Yeah, yeah, not that you lie at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not in my we'll, face. We'll but. look at your Uber logs. <laughs> yeah, there we go. You know exactly where I'm going. Yeah. So that's it's cool to kind of understand your your process of, of how you've kind of gone through and, and some of those lessons that you've learned along the way. So- a part of the innovations, like kind of ex also ex expose a little bit more about like, what does it mean to innovate in this? And like, what does it mean for a course to innovate? I know, I know we're going to talk about the whiskey and that's an, the new innovation, yeah. but kind of talk about like, you know, before then, before there was whiskey, maybe a little bit before the seltzer yeah, train really does, happened. Like what, what was really your innovation? Yeah. And why does ideology? a brand like core need to innovate? Cause it's such a, you know, it's a staple. It's a staple, yeah. you know? Well, I don't know if I should say this, but sometimes it's because you see someone else doing something really well and you get jealous and you just, you're like, I got to do that <laughs> FOMO, too. <laughs> yeah. FOMO happens in the, that way. Yeah, exactly. But um, no, I, I think it's one of those where you've got to protect your core and you've got big brands and, and when they get to a point of saturation, it's it's hard to grow them at the same level of scale. So you have to diversify or you have to add it, flank those brands with other products that can drive an incremental growth. And and so I think, you know, you you consumer research and you, you read a bunch of articles, where, where are consumer trends going? What flavor profilers are they wanting? You know, better for you trends. It, it's interesting right now, right? You see this, everyone wants the better for you hundred calorie thing. And then they're also drinking, you know, high ABV double IPAs. Like <laughs> it's like, there's it, no background. Right. Yeah. But as you long should as just be drinking Coors Light all along. <laughs> I just want zero sugar, hundred calories, <laughs> no carbs, yeah. but three times hops. There you go. <laughs> But it, it, there's something to a, a really good, high quality product, you know, always wins at the end of the day. And no matter now, so there's some consumers that want the certain calories or carbs things. And there's other consumers that just want something that tastes good, that fits, fits the need that they want. So, yeah, I mean, we've innovated in a number of different spaces over the years. And there's a stat out there that I think only it's less than 5% of innovations really survive uh, past the first or second year. And so, you, you know, going in that it's going to be a tough road and and making those the ones that stick and and why they stick it's it's a magic formula. It's a funny you talk about, you know, like talking about growth and I'll read the Mark Brown reports and they'll say like, you know, domestic beer was up like 
a half percent or one percent or this or that but and you're like well that's not that much and then you like look into how much that half percent or one percent is and you're like holy shit that's a lot of <laughs> case volume there that you know shifts that number up or down like i guess so is it like that people are looking you know investors or share are looking for like double digit growth in new areas is that what they kind of want or yeah i mean i mean Regardless of the number of zeros, right? If you're running a business and your business is only growing half a percent, you can't even afford salary increases for your staff. You know, so that's that's where you got to play the 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 game of trying to figure out, okay, what kind of growth do we need? How do we pay the bills? How do we cut costs? And how do you innovate to do that or grow? You got to grow both organically and inorganically to deliver. And so, part of innovations is always the seltzer side of things. So. Did you have a, a hand in what was going to be like and what was seltzers or anything like that for Molson Coors? No, I did not. I I left the innovation group before the seltzer craze kind of hit. But, you're like, thank God. <laughs> yeah, dodge that bullet, maybe. But that, uh, we, we had a seltzer. We actually had Henry's Hard Sparkling Soda. I don't know if you remember that brand. Yeah. That was a seltzer that, oh, gosh, someone else would know for sure whether we launched at the same time or right before White Claw. Um, and... You know, whether whether it's brand marketing or the brand itself or we had I thought the product was great, but um it's one of those where White Claw caught everyone's attention was the the beverage of choice that summer, a few summers ago, and it just it those damn flavor packs <laughs> <laughs> offering all the variety. People like that. <laughs> but it's it's one of those where you could say, Okay, even even if you're in the right place at the right time, you just don't get the proposition just right and you miss the mark. Room for error is quite small. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a business decision we'll have to keep in mind, making sure you, you got all your I's and T's crossed and dotted and all that sort of stuff. So now that you've you've kind of, so you, you left that group and then you became, I guess, part of the, the vice president of the innovation sort of realm sort of thing. So what was the idea of, hey, let's go ahead and let's dive into whiskey? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. 
so you, you left that group and then you became, I guess, part of the, the vice president of the innovation sort of realm sort of thing. So what was the idea of, hey, let's go ahead and let's dive into whiskey? Actually, I did, I did a three-year stint in Australia. I launched and ran our, our beer business down in oh, Australia before this. So I don't, let's Ooh. talk about that. Yeah, uh, it was, I want to go to Australia. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, Which cities? Uh, Sydney. Got Sydney, Sydney. Nice. Yeah, and travel around. Recommendation, if you go to Australia, there's obviously all the tourist traps, but if you can if you can go beyond that ring and visit, and that's what's great about the beer business or alcohol business is you get to go and you get to meet with bar owners and see parts of the community that uh, that you don't get to when you're just a tourist. And so for three years, I got to do that across Australia and New Zealand, which was really cool. But that was that was a, a great experience of, you know, spending some time away from the home market. Aussies are very critical of things. They love parts of Americana. They don't like parts of Americana. And they're very passionate about their beer. And uh, is Foster's like the, is it, or is that just like, we think that's maybe the, it's just like an American thing yeah. that we think that they all like. Right. Exactly. Well, it used to be the biggest beer in Australia and then it just fell off a cliff. So uh, Americans think that that is Australian for beer, but uh, it actually fell well, off. I a think cliff that's what Australia. the marketing on said. <laughs> <laughs> it tr- truly is. It is. Yeah. Um, so that it was trying to crack into that market with a brand like Coors Light, which is lighter, refreshing, and and they're all about give me give me my give me my ale or or give me a, you know full flavored lager. Breaking into that market was a fun challenge, and and but it was a special time. Maybe beer or not beer related. You had said that there's some things that Australians like and don't like about Americana. Do you remember one thing they like or don't like? And does, again, doesn't have to be they, beer related. They they love us uh, like American movies and and. But it is funny when you meet someone, you know, they love Canadians for some reason. Like Canadians a lot more than Americans. I don't know why, but <laughs> they're a lot nicer, they're, they're more <laughs> passive. <laughs> but uh, right, eh? <laughs> exactly. But they, I mean. They loved American fashion, American fashion, American movies, that kind of thing. They were very, you know, warm to. But one thing I loved about Australia, you walk up to a bar and there you order at the bar and they don't have as much service, right? So they'll, you'll order something and they'll bring it to your table. Um, they don't have a waiter at every waiter or waitress at every table. And so while you're standing in line for beer, they just talk. They're very friendly, conversive, you know, whereas here someone's on their phone texting. <laughs> They're like, hey, mate, how you doing? Well, you know, what's going on? What are you doing here? What's your name? And and next thing you know, you're at their table drinking beers with them. It's it's a riot. So that kind of cultural element. Um, They're big whiskey great. fans too. They, fans, love, right? they love their whiskeys, their bourbons. They love their ready-to-drinks, um, you know, Beam and Cola, Jack and Cola are huge down there. And you could get out of a, a vending machine down there in places yeah. I've seen. <laughs> Practically, yeah. Yeah. So- now that now that we've gone through the the Australian phase, yeah, now we're in the whiskey. We're phase. getting there. We're getting are there. we in the whiskey we're phase? We're building it up. Yeah, we're right. it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we we in, end of twenty nineteen, we as a company decided to be a beverage company, and I applied for the, the for the role of next generation beverages, which included overseeing spirit or venture into spirits, and so that it was finally my chance to exercise a dream I've had for twenty years, and I'll I'll tell you a story. So I was back in college. And um, where'd you go to college, by the way? Went to college up at Cornell. Okay. Uh, in New oh, York. Yeah. yeah. And I went to Rutgers. So oh, there you use go. Cornell for turf stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah. We did research projects with them. Nice. Uh, yeah. It was, it, I, I'm sure people care about blast. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had a blast up there. But just started dabbling a little bit in whiskey in the later years of college. And I remember being home for winter break and I'm driving with my dad. We're in, we're in the suburban. He's driving. And I just look over and say, Dad, why don't we make whiskey 
And he didn't even look over at me. He's got his hands on the steering wheel. He just says, we're good at one thing, and that's beer. <laughs> well, and you're like, Dad, but beer turns into whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was the end of the conversation. I wish I was more of a rebel, and I wish I would have uh, had some 20-year-old whiskey right now to share with you guys. But but I wasn't the rebel. I said, okay, and I went on my way. So, But ever since that moment in time, I've always just been intrigued by the space and been a casual consumer of whiskey. Do you, um, before we get yeah. there, do you remember during that time, like what you were drinking, like what was your, what were you pulling off the shelf? Or, I mean, if it was college, we we're probably running around mixing it with Coke or doing something, but yeah. do you remember what was your, well, your it, it, so the, the first, first whiskey I really remember was Crown Royal on the rocks. Yeah. And um, it's because I had uh, a cold and my dad poured me a little crown on the rocks and what a dad. I'm, I'm not, I'm not being a doctor here, but I woke up next morning. My sore throat was gone. I felt great. And I was like, wow, there's something to this whiskey stuff. <laughs> my head hurts, but my, <laughs> my throat feels great. Yeah. <laughs> and, but that was like, literally is that moment in time. I was like, wow, this is, this is interesting. And I, Magical. I, I did not geek out back then and on a college budget and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was, yeah, we we're doing all the typical stuff of, of mixing and, but I was, I was still a, a beer guy. And I mean, that's, it was like, Coors Light and Keystone Light all through college, right? That was that was the go-to, and um, so yeah, you'd probably be banned from the family if it wasn't like that. You know? <laughs> we didn't have our own whiskey to drink, so. <laughs> but it just always intrigued by it, and it was very casual. And then over the last probably five years, you know, you you have friends and everyone's getting into this whiskey space, and and I look at it as that step beyond craft beer, right? Where the craft beer drinker. They explore all these different breweries and they start out with amber ales and ended up with double IPAs. And now they've kind of maxed their bandwidth of what to learn. And then you go up into whiskey and this is the experience that I had. I was like, holy cow, there's so much more to learn in this space when you're talking about charring of, of the casks and all the grain bills and the different TTB definitions of, of what there are. And, and I was just really amazed by the category and was also casually exploring it with some friends. Okay. So... You explore it, but what is the idea that you said, I, I think we're going to run with this. We're going to do this. What were those initial phone calls or did you have to sell your dad on it? Like what was, <laughs> can I can talk, talk about that conversation too? No, it was, uh, well, I, I also oversee part of my division is uh, our, our foray into cannabis. That was a tougher conversation with my dad than, oh, than we say, probably, we'll talk about that one <laughs> yeah. too. But no, that was an easy, it was an easy conversation. It was a hard conversation internally with how, um, how we're going to do this with our capabilities. We can, we can brew a beer and put something out there pretty easily. We don't have facilities that make whiskey. We don't have, um, you know, bottling capabilities, all that kind of stuff was. Yeah. And that Colorado arid climate, good for barley, not so good for aging. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe not as many as corn. <laughs> so it was, it was trying to figure out how we'd build that up all from the, the ground up, but was able to get the, the team and the organization aligned with the idea of this is a large category growing rapidly. There's elements to the process and product that we're familiar with, like the brewing side and, and the barley side of things. And so, um, got people's heads wrapped around that. And then the question was, how do we enter this space? Yeah. So how'd you, I mean, obviously we know what product you came out with, but what were those initial, like, do I want to do a bourbon? Do I want to do a single malt or, do, or you know, American malt? It's whatever. like you have all the you, barley. Yeah. You, you could have, just do a single malt barley the entire right. way. We went through all that thinking and what I, going back to my learning on third shift was authenticity and a rich story. I said, okay, well, we, we've got barley and we've got water that people are familiar with from a Coors trademark perspective. So how do we do that? And also don't want to wait four years for some fresh single malt that we make to age and be ready to sell well, four years down the road um, wasn't going to work. So I was starting to talk to a few different folks and getting samples sent to me and 
talking with uh, my colleagues and trying to figure out, okay, what's the right space? What the, what's the authentic story? And then COVID hit in March of 2020, as we all know. And I got shingles in April of 2020. Oh, and gosh. so I was like, just, I had all these samples and I started just in my kitchen, I'd get all the glassware out in my graduating cylinder and I'd start doing blends on my kitchen counter. My wife would be like, oh gosh, not again, here he comes. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's how I started getting during COVID. That's how I started learning. Uh, it, and, I didn't it, have shingles though. So. Uh, well, it, it uh, again, not to be a medicine, but it, it helped me through the shingles uh, <laughs> a little bit. And it was just one of those where I knew I wanted to have our malt and our water. And we've we've sold, we've got uh, our malting facility in Golden's, one of the world's, or North America's largest malting facilities. And so I said, okay, I've got our malt. And we've sold malt to breweries and distilleries around Colorado for over a decade. And I said, okay, maybe I can find some single malt that has, or some whiskey that has our malt in it. And I was able to track some of that down. And then I was talking with, I don't know if you heard, know Herb Henneman, Danny's colleague at uh, Bardstown. Oh, Bardstown yeah. Company. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, very well. And he he worked at Coors back in the day, or Miller Coors at the time. And uh, we met up for a cheeseburger in, in Denver. He said, well, you got to come out to the distillery and see what we're doing. I said, well, no, I've, I think I've got my blend for you. He's like, no, just come on out. Just come <laughs> on out. So, so sure enough, I went out there with uh, with one of our master brewers, my boss, Pete Marino. And we sat down with the Bardstown crew for a couple of days. And we took my blend and they just helped us perfect it yeah once you go to bbc don't come back like you're because <laughs> they're so, so hospitable they do mm. such a fantastic job they got great products great the team they have is just you know tremendous at helping people learn so much about the space and how to make their product the best representation of like what you want it to be yeah yeah they, i mean we've just been blown away with their hospitality and in support of of this uh, project. So that's how you found out from BBC was from Herb? Yep. Or you had no idea who they were before then? I did not actually, no. I'm embarrassed to say so. No, that's <laughs> that's fascinating. Though. Yeah. But yeah, it was, I mean, I'd, a couple of my colleagues said, oh, do you know Herb's down at this distillery? So he reached out it's to me. small little place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go visit it and <laughs> exactly. you're like, oh my God, this place is pretty big. Yeah. So part of it was kind of going, it, did you bring some of your your malt samples with you and kind of went to the lab and started try, trying to figure out like, okay, what can we blend with this or kind of talk about the story of the kind of how the, how the whiskey became to be. Yeah. Well, I, so I had the, I had the blend, which one day we're going to release that blend. I, I, this is five trail ended up a lot better probably than what that was, but I need to go back and try <laughs> back in, in the hundred ml. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's uh, so I said, this is what I want it to be. And, and of course I'm again, openly new to this game. So, yeah, uh, these guys. Are like, okay, yeah, calm down, Dave. We'll, we'll take you through this, <laughs> and that's cute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we know what we're doing. Just listen to us. And so we sat down for two days, and we tasted over a hundred different blends, starting with the the starting point, and we get to the place and go, "Wow, oh, that's really good." And then we start tweaking, and um, and yeah, it was just one of those where we went on this amazing journey for two days, ebbing and flowing what we thought was going to be the right blend until we got to where we wanted. I wanted the the single malt, and one thing that we People have kind of questioned why not just a bourbon, and it's I want I want our malt in it. So I, I could do a malt with just our bourbon, but but we didn't have that. But a single malt, we found a single malt that has our malt in it. So I, I wanted to be able to tie back to that, and then we also ship our water from the Golden Brewery uh, to Bardstown. We package and um that's an and expensive proof, tanker proof down with uh it, it is but it's it's <laughs> worth it we like our water in golden so <laughs> i'd say so <laughs> we wanted it in in the blend and and so that was how it kind of all all came together but um but yeah the four components that are in there i think each each married up perfectly 
So when we talk about the original part of going and trying to find the sourcing of, okay, who's actually using our, our malt to make whiskey? When you found that and you said, okay, well, we can buy some stuff off you. Did you look at this and say, like, oh, this will be this will be a fun one-off thing? Is this scalable? Is this something that we can continue on? When you first found that that one producer, because I'm sure it wasn't, oh yeah, we've got 500 barrels available. You can buy whatever you want. I'm sure it wasn't that at all. It's probably a much different conversation. Yeah, it, it was, and I won't get into the the finer details of that. And and why not? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, but we're, we're working on what that sustainable model is. That's another fun kind of aspect of it is how do we, okay, let's, we're, it's, the verdict's still out, right? Whether we really have something. We think we have a great product and reception has been great initially. And so we're just trying to feel out to see where this thing goes. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you landed on four, you said four different components. What are Correct. what are those components? We know one single malt. Yep. Obviously there's a bourbon in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a 45% weeded that's four years old from Indiana um, or MGP. We got 35% four grain that's four years old from our friends at Bardstown. Uh, and then 15% of the Colorado single malt. How come we didn't get the four grain I offered guess to us? We didn't get offered. I guess it. our last names aren't cool. Enough. I know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'll work you a favor. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then 5% uh, finishing off is 13-year-old Kentucky bourbon. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, nice. market. Yeah. yeah. And what I love about it, and we can get into the tasting, but it's like each one of those components play a critical role. And I think you can pick them all out on the palate as you as you drink through it. And I think I'm reading it's 95 proof on the label. How did you land on that? It was just like, you just thought it at that proof it was the best or it's how I'm sure that's what it is, but <laughs> <laughs> explain yeah. how you came to the proof. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was, it was one of those where we, we knew we, we didn't want to go in at 80, right. We wanted to, and this is the whole thing of Coors is known as a affordable beer brand. Right. And yeah, so we're coming out with a $60 bottle of, of whiskey and there's a dichotomy there, but I love this kind of high, low kind of strategy where it's kind of like when you eat caviar with a Ruffles, you know, chip, it's kind of one of those plays. Yeah. Um, when you didn't want that, a Coors Light <laughs> and you didn't want to double a Hopside PA. <laughs> exactly. you know, you're learning. <laughs> but it was, it was definitely flavor driven. And also we didn't want to have to filter and uh, we were advised that above 94 proof, um, you don't need to filter. We didn't want to strip any color or any of the good stuff in the in the bottle. So makes sense. And the name's Five Trail. Five Trail, yeah, not trails, not trails. <laughs> so the name, kind of talk about the genesis of that. Yeah, it kind of said. Well, naming any product that you guys probably know these days is impossible. <laughs> you got to go <laughs> through your lawyer, trademark attorney. And... Yeah, and we have great trademark attorneys, and it's still very tough. But we came across this idea of ins the inspiration of uh, five generations of trailblazers. So five trail kind of is a nod to the generations of trailblazing that we've done in the beverage industry. And it wasn't trademarked. So <laughs> are you, are you one of these, win. are you one of these five? I, I yes. Okay. Yes. There's, there's a large, uh, there's a large cohort of the fifth generation, but I'm, I'm one of them. All right. Well, we'll see if we can get your, your picture drawn on the side of the label one of these days. <laughs> no, I'm not ready maybe, maybe that. release, you know, Six or something like that. Be like this is this is David's release. Yeah. So how how big is the first release? How how many bottles? Uh, so we made ten thousand six packs. Oh nice. Um, we launched in four markets: uh, Nevada, Colorado, Georgia, New York, and we're still working through that first batch and launching some more markets this spring. I believe I can disclose. Oh yeah. Well. You know, it's, it's so going to be. It may be already in the market by the time this thing gets announced. So, uh, but we'll be in in a half dozen to a dozen more states throughout this year in twenty two. So you're looking at it now. You you see the growth. You see the trajectory. You see the the response that's coming out of it. Then it kind of goes back to that 
original question of, all right, now we've got to own everything the top down. So have you started making, say, like, we need to invest in the distillery, our own single malt distillery that can make this a sustainable thing? Or is it, hey, maybe we can contract, we'll bring our malt to Bourbon Bar Suburban Company. Have you thought about what that looks like? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're we're working through that um, currently and I still got to work on the finance guys to convince them to put in a still, you know, but again, like I said, it's early days and we're trying to feel what the consumer receptivity is on this product. And, um, and it's one of those where I would, I mean, it's, it's been a dream for a long time to have, you know, a still or be able to make our own stuff. And so we're trying to figure out what and when and how. Or to so, pr- prove your dad wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just tell those bean counters, the margins will make sense. <laughs> just take 10 years. It takes 10 years <laughs> take to get there. It takes 10 years to get so there. So will the five trail be the, you know, similar product, like the six, same consistent, you know, four components of it? Is that the goal? Well, so the, for instance, the 13 year that we source, that is right. no longer available. So every year it will change. Uh, we'll have a batching. We have a batching code system on the back, actually. Um, like in red. So code. this is batch one CWC for Coors Whiskey Co. 21 for the year that it was bottled 2021 and then dash A. So this is A will be. That's well thought out. Yeah. It's just not like batch two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're peasants. Over here. <laughs> we can talk about the high math that to help us get yeah. this number. Algorithm. <laughs> but it'll be. So every year. Yeah. We'll, we'll take that 5%. It maybe it's, maybe it's more than 5% and we'll, we'll see what's on the marketplace and throw it in there. The goal is, as I tell the team is I, we we're in the fairway and I'm going to stay in the fairway from a flavor <laughs> perspective, but some of the different series we could do a b or a c or a d and those could be something where we do a uh, barrel proof where we could do you know a barrel finishing and and a special barrel we have some of that planned for the year but we will every year we'll have to redo a new batch so now that you've been doing this into the whiskey side and they actually you've been drinking whiskey for a long time but not into like the real whiskey business really kind of starting around like 2019 ish time frame what are some of those hard lessons that you've learned so far of saying like, oh, let's start a whiskey that you were like, this didn't exist in the beer business. Oh gosh, there's so many things. Um, I mean, it, one thing that comes to mind is just the planning process. I mean, the stuff you let you lay it down and you don't touch it for four years. And so you do a 10 year plan and it's like, lick your finger and put it up in the wind and see, see where things are going to go. And how do you, what do you source? What do you lay down? Um, that's, that's a higher math degree. I mean, I'm an engineer you know, undergrad, but it still kind of baffles my mind on, on as I talk with people in this industry and how they map all of that out. That's been super tough. I think people are extremely educated in this space. And, you know, I'm used to being very comfortable on the beer side. And then I got to go in and talk whiskey and I'm not as comfortable or confident in that space. And, but I've been learning a ton every conversation I have, whether it's with a retailer or, or folks like right, yourself. Tell us every char level on each <laughs> component <laughs> and what tier it was on and which warehouse. Exactly. <laughs> I'm working on that detail. So. Yeah. But I think that's challenging. And then, and then supply chain, as you guys mentioned, is, is challenging in this environment. So there's been a, a number of, of different lessons that uh, me and the team have been working through. Have you figured out yet, talked to the R&D team yet to figure out how you can make the mountains on the front of this turn blue <laughs> when you know it's ready to drink? 
That's a good question. That'll be on the stage. (laughs) Or the hoops. Yeah, the the barrels. Yeah, the barrel hoops. (laughs) Like, this one's ready. Drill into it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe in five or six years, it turns blue and it's just right to to can't. Something tells me you have the resources to make that happen. (laughs) I think you can figure that out. We'll get working on it. I like it. (laughs) So the the kind of last question I'll kind of post to you about this is sort of, where do you see the vision for this? And you already kind of mentioned, like, we could potentially do barrel proof, do some state finishing. Do you look at this as like, we have cemented this as a core product for Molson Cores. This is going to be a, a staple for us. And do you see us, do you see ourselves going even further into the whiskey category as well? Yeah. I, I mean, th- those are conversations we're having, but it's um, a lot of factors are going to play in kind of what direction it goes. What Cause you don't do like little small things, right? Everything's well, got to be kind of, <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is small, like even 10,000 cases and we all know it's different dentists are, you know, per case than, than a case of beer, but we're used to dealing in millions of cases of stuff, right? So yeah. this is this is minuscule in the grand scheme of things from a Molson Coors perspective, but it is one of those where you got to plant a seed and, and some things we do need to come out of the gates, they need to come out hot and big and other things we need to plant a seed and be patient and watch them fester and grow. And this is one of those that's, that's a little bit of a longer path and we want to be patient with it. And we developed Coors Whiskey Co. as kind of a, a parent banner company, which I think Five Trail is one component of that. And there could be other components underneath the Coors Whiskey Co. parent company. So that we've left, we've kind of built this with optionality to go forward. And I think the consumer and retailers in the marketplace are going to help dictate where we go. Have the benchmarks, I guess, changed from the beer side to this new project? Like how, I guess, what will make it a success for you guys to be like, all right, this is the space we need to be in to move forward? Probably finance guys would say deliver the business case, (laughs) (laughs) which I'd say we're probably... We're probably off on that a little bit, but as, as you guys all well know, it does take time. I think being patient, what what determines success? I mean, I'll be damned if this is a, you know, one and done and and we're not successful. I'll do everything I can in, in my capabilities to make this thing successful and visit with whomever I can and sample whomever I can and, and spread the word as best as I can. I'm in love with the product. I'm nervous about batch two because batch one is so delicious. Oh yeah. It's terrifying going from batch one to two. (laughs) I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, And it's like we talked earlier, it's your first child and it's like, no, that's it. I just want that. Um, Just do that over and over and over. over (laughs) The flavor on batch one is excellent. It's got nice balance. It's got some chocolate notes, some honey in there. It's very just, it's a, I could sit on my porch and drink this, you know, in a hot summer day. It's very nice, nicely done. So, Excellent job on batch one. I appreciate that. So one last thing to kind of finish us out, and this is not even just whiskey, it's not beer. This is kind of back to VP of innovations without giving anything away and saying, this is what we're doing. Where do you see just the beverage alcohol space going? Because you have to keep your finger on the pulse. You have to kind of see what's happening. What are the trends that you're seeing right now that people need to be aware of or jumping on or anything like that? I, I mean, gosh, there's so many dynamics happening right now, um, whether it's rapid growth of tequila, um, convergence, as we talk about, where businesses, whether it's non-alc companies getting into alcohol or alcohol companies getting into non-alc, um, you know, the cannabis front is one of those that's, that's you know, we've, it's just kind of sitting there and it's ready for for something to happen when the feds That'll decide to batch E. <laughs> <laughs> I think consumer trends are shifting so much more quicker than they used to. And it is a really challenging game to try to keep up with that and, and 
to predict what's next. I think hedging your bets is always a safe play. I think whiskey's got a lot of uh, room to run and it's, I think it's a fascinating category. So probably pretty bullish on the whiskey front and gosh, I, I, like I said, I'm a beer drinker. I hope beer stays healthy and continues um, to play a big role in, in consumer alcohol consumption habits going forward. But no longer is your Coors Light drinker only a Coors Light drinker. They drink Coors Light and they drink whiskey and they drink tequila and they drink wine. And so those are all the number of different trends that you just got to be sure that you're trying to capture that consumer depending on what occasion they want. All right. Last question. Only because you had mentioned it earlier and you brought it up again. (laughs) I want to mention you had mentioned you had to sell your dad on the cannabis side of things. So talk about what that is and what that looks like and what you all are experimenting with. Yeah. Well, I luckily didn't have to convince him for us to get into cannabis. It was the market, the the market did it, (laughs) the market did and, and consumer trends did. But when I took this job, I, the way we've approached it is that we're very much about responsible consumption, right? So if if we're going to be in cannabis, we're going to be in cannabis in the same effect that a beverage would give you as as a Coors Light effectively, right? That it's, it's not overly intoxicating it and it helps you enjoy, you know, whatever life moments you're, you're enjoying it at that we'd stick within beverage, not get into any other flower edibles or that kind of thing. And that we'd follow regulations in the regulatory environment as it evolves and shifts. And then I also dovetailed it back to when I was talking with him is that alcohol was prohibited. You know, we went through prohibition and as a company, we survived prohibition, fortunately, and coming out of prohibition, it was the same thing of we were participating in a substance that had gone through over a decade of prohibition. And so when I made kind of those analogy, even I had to sell it to myself, like, do I want a position where I'm overseeing this category? And uh, those all helped me get my head wrapped around it. Very cool. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show today, sharing more about your story and kind of giving our listeners an insight into the Coors family and sort of what you built. And congratulations on Five Trail. It's an excellent whiskey. It's not going to be a third shift. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make sure of it. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) No, I really appreciate you guys' time and and hearing me out. Sure. So if people want to learn more about Five Trail, maybe follow you somewhere, how would they do that? Yeah. So we have uh, Five Trail on Instagram decours for me personally on on instagram uh but it's more of a personal account yeah we'll continue through five trail and course whiskey co to communicate all the fun stuff that's coming out it should be fun the fall 22 with some of the new variants that we're going to be releasing and look forward to seeing you guys all out there cheers well thank you so much david for having us on make sure you follow five trail follow bourbon pursuit wherever you get your socials and of course if you like the show share it with a friend that's the best way to find out more stuff about whiskeys sharing it with friends as well so with that cheers everybody We'll see you next week.